I'm Steve Fisher. If there's one thing every person who enters the acting profession wants, it's to earn a living as an actor. John Sanders has been on Broadway and has appeared in shows such as Succession, Billions, The Blacklist, and more on television. He's currently appearing on HBO's The Gilded Age as well as a number of commercials. He's a working actor, and he's my guest on Life Slices. Welcome, John Sanders, to Life Slices. I want to start with, give us an IMDb Plus profile of yourself. First of all, thank you, Steve, for having me here. I'm uh, uh, very happy to be here. Yeah, sure. well, I'm, a, I'm originally a West Coast guy. I was born in, the, um, in, in Northern California, and uh, I went to school at the University of Oregon. And then I made my way to Chicago, New York, and now I live in L.A. That's the quick, quick version of it. I don't know how in depth you want to go, but uh, well, we're going to get farther into depth. I mean, what do people, aside from the fact that you're an actor and a voiceover right. artist, what what should people know about you? Well, gosh, I mean, um, publicly, that's uh, you know, th- that's the main thrust of it. Um, I really enjoy, I really enjoy acting and storytelling. I did theater pretty exclusively for a really long time um, because that's my passion. And it still is my passion, even though I'm not doing a lot of it lately. Well, nobody's doing a lot of it lately, but um, <laughs> even before the pandemic, I sort of like pulled away from that. Yeah, you know, I, I, I just appeared on The Gilded Age uh, um, as Stanford White. I was just recently on Succession. I've been I had the good fortune to be on some on some really wonderful, fantastic, fascinating TV shows lately. You, you seem to be on all my favorite shows, so I, I, I don't know what it is. But. You know, isn't that cool? It's a cool, it's a cool couple of HBO shows to, uh, to have been on lately. You know, I really enjoy watching them, you know, so um, it's, nice to, it's nice to be a part of that. And uh, yeah, I played Ned Ryerson on Groundhog Day, in Groundhog Day on Broadway. And that was uh, that was great fun. I spent a lot of time in Matilda on Broadway, and in Peter and the Starcatcher on Broadway, and on tour, and in Mamma Mia, on tour all over the country. Um, yeah, so th- that's those are some of my theater highlights. And also, you probably hear my voice a lot on the in the TV and the radio if you listen to the radio. But radio, uh, yeah. what's that? Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> We're on it now. Yeah, I listen to a lot of radio, actually. Uh, when did you know you wanted to be an actor? It was in high school. I went to uh, a Jesuit high school in Sacramento. And uh, your listeners might know that as um, one of the high schools portrayed in in the movie Lady Bird. And Greta Gerwig actually went to one of our uh, a Jesuit high school in Sacramento. It was an all-boys high school. It was one of the sister schools is St. Francis. And that is, I still believe it, all-girls high school. And I, I believe that Greta went there. She was just a few years behind me. And so the, uh, our theater program was very well funded and had great facilities and was led by this uh, gentleman named Ed Trafton, who's uh, still there running it. And he's a, he's a fantastic genius and a mentor to a lot of people and a wonderful theater maker. He is not portrayed in the film. <laughs> it's, it, that's a, that's a, that's a completely different character. It was there that I found that I was, my thinking mind was was mulling over religion and that I'd been raised Catholic, but in a very kind of laissez-faire way. We went to church every week when my parents sort of really kind of 
you know, encouraged me to just think for myself in all ways. And, and then I found in the ritual uh, and beauty of the theater, the connection that I was, that, that sort of really had that sort of spiritual spark in me. And it took me on that journey. That is where I've always found the, the most enjoyment and the most just gratification from the the connection that that you can have telling other people a story. And so I always look forward to getting back to it. Was your family always supportive of your goals? Always, um, even when they weren't. Uh, my, uh, <laughs> my mom was um, a theater major in college and um, and then became an educator and uh, and used her theater training in her education practices. And my dad was an engineer and he went to Ivy League schools and 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 worked for Hewlett Packard. And when I went to when I went said that I wanted to major in theater, I believe it I I learned later that it was my 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 mom who said behind closed doors, we can't let him do this. <laughs> <laughs> and, was, and my dad was like, no, we need to let, we raised him to make his choices. And this is one of them. And so, and they were always supportive. Only once did I get in, in however many decades, so desperate that I had to ask for a little bit of money. <laughs> but to be honest, I was very privileged in knowing that if I ever really did need it, that it was there, even though I, you know, I, I never depended on it. But um, it's a privilege to to know that that safety net is there, and, and it allows you to go out and take big risks. And not everybody has that privilege, so I'm very grateful. How did you get started? Once you graduated from college and you were ready to embark on a professional career. Well, that was that was really interesting because you know there's not a whole lot of training in a lot of theater programs, especially liberal arts programs like the University of Oregon, which is not like a professional conservatory training program for you know what it takes to the, do the grind of being a young actor in the world uh, you know and so um i got out to chicago because that's i, I wanted to be you know especially in the in the late 90s chicago had had garnered an incredible reputation via among many other people the critic the lead Tribune critic for the, all of the 70s, 80s, and 90s, Richard Christensen, who just recently passed away at the age of 90. I was at the University of Oregon with a man named Jimmy Bickerstaff, who was a, a PhD candidate and had worked in Chicago for 15 years. And he convinced me that that's the place that I wanted to be, where they were like doing small theater for theater's sake, for people who lived there. Every neighborhood has its own theater. Theater's just part of the culture there. And, you know, in New York, theater is, is huge. It's an even bigger part of the culture, but it's also very commercialized. It's, you know, it, it, it's about market value and, and, that, and that sort of thing. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And, um, and so I decided to go to Chicago. And, um, and I got there and I just, you know, I got a job um, selling shoes on Michigan Avenue. And, um, and then I, I uh, uh, with a couple of friends, we produced a play that I directed. And then I just started auditioning and, um, you know, started doing shows for no money, basically, for years and years until I people started to to pay me to do it. <laughs> what was your first Broadway show? It was Peter and the Starcatcher back in 2012. I was just living and working in Chicago. And in fact, I had had some of the most, biggest successes of my career and followed by the biggest, followed immediately by the biggest dry spell of my career. And that, you know, sometimes that's just how it goes. It's, it's not always that you had a, you know, had a great appearance on 
TV or on stage and now the phone rings off the hook. Life just doesn't always just happen like that. So um, I was kind of in a difficult place and I got an audition from a New York casting director who was just making their way through Chicago looking for people to be in tours uh, the Anything Goes Tour and the Book of Mormon Tour. And I, I impressed enough uh, on those fronts to earn myself another audition for another play the, the following week for a play called Peter and the Starcatcher. And this is a beautiful play written by the playwright Rick Ellis, who also wrote Jersey Boys, uh, co-wrote uh, Jersey Boys, uh, among many other big Broadway hits, and directed by his husband, Roger Rees, and the director, Alex Timbers, as a co-directing pair. And Alex has directed Moulin Rouge, which is touring, about to tour the country right now. Uh, just won the Tony for that. And so this was an incredible... This was an incredible journey and an incredible play about the uh, beginnings of Peter Pan. And I was cast as the understudy for Christian Borel and a number of other actors. And I, it, I, I went on a few dozen times during its Broadway run. And then they asked me to be uh, uh, to play the, 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 the Captain Hook part um, on the tour a couple years later. That's amazing. Uh, that was my first Broadway gig was understudying. And <laughs> so I spent most of my time not acting. <laughs> well, that, a lot of people don't understand that uh, understudies uh, and swings especially have gotten a lot of attention lately because they've been going on, on in Broadway shows when the stars catch COVID. First of all, what is the difference between an understudy and a swing? Sure. That's something that I had to learn too when I sort of got there. And an understudy is what you typically think of. You are understudying um you know it's it's sort of different parlance for essentially the same thing an understudy is more the parlance of of the world of plays and a and 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 a swing is more the parlance of the world of chorus people in musicals and so um when you are when you're a swing if you're swinging a show then you know maybe you know maybe all of the male tracks, or maybe you know these five or seven male tracks. They're called tracks. Um, mm -hmm. we, we rarely call them roles when we're actually speaking in theater. And, and so you know the show from all angles. You know, on beat seven of measure 84 in scene eight, um, my foot goes here at this angle. And you know that for like seven different people. Wow. Um, it's really incredible. Not only that, but you know where they go backstage, who they go to see for the costume change, when they need to go get their mustache taken off, when they need to put this hat on, and who you follow when you go out. And it's all of this crazy stuff. They're really, really incredible, incredible people. I've, I've never swung, but I've, um, I guess I did sort of swing on Peter and the Starcatcher because I understudied because it was a play, not a musical. I understudied five <laughs> different roles in that show. And so I knew the the lines and all of the onstage and backstage traffic for five different parts. How tough is that to, re to remember all that? It takes an incredible amount of rigor. You can't do it halfway. I've seen it done halfway, and it doesn't work. You get on stage and... You mess other people up, you know, um, and you can, you run the risk of messing up yourself and um, looking like a fool, but more importantly, disrupting the experience of the audience and, and, and the flow of the show. And uh, so it's, it, it, 
it, it is a huge responsibility. And Hugh Jackman and all of the other people on Broadway who were recently celebrating understudies and swings are, are very right to do so. When you did it, what kind of notice did you have that you had to step into the role? Oh, well, that varies. Um, any time from a few weeks. I had a few weeks notice that I was going to step into the Captain Hook role in, in Peter and the Starcatcher. And that was great because I was able to really prepare for it. Um, like really just kind of fine tune all the little moves that I wanted to do and all the little bits that I had, but also um, to invite people. And so people flew out from the West Coast to to see me do it. F- flew up from Florida to, to see me do it. And uh, professionally it was good because my um, representation was uh, was able to invite people to, to see me perform. But also I've been told that I'm going on at intermission. So, oh, it's intermission. This guy threw out his back. It's going to be you for the second act. So we'll make a little announcement at the uh, at the act two curtain, and then you're on. So, so when you're an understudy, do you just hang out backstage waiting? Yeah, that, that's right. We have our own dressing room, and we just literally sat there every single day for you hours and hours. Get through and a lot of books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You get through a lot of books. You can do a lot of TV shows. You know, um, I was young and hungry on Broadway, and so I spent most of my time just kind of walking around the building listening to the show and the speakers and reciting all the lines. So I, I could probably tell you the play from beginning to end and everybody's line when I was in it. Do, do you get to rehearse at all? Yeah, you rehearse uh, maybe one or two days a week. There's some union limits on those that that can be finessed by those who have an interest in doing so. But uh, nonetheless, uh, you get you get usually um, between eight and ten hours of rehearsal a week, I believe. And it's up to the production on 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 how to use those and um, who to use during those hours and uh, and what to do during those hours. Um, the more effective shows that I've seen really take a look at what the people on stage need from that time. And the less effective shows are sort of what the choreographers need during that time. Um, because then you just kind of feel like you're a robot in somebody else's piece. Um, and that's an unfortunate byproduct of the commercial theater sometimes. You made uh, allusion, we had an allusion. You flat out mentioned some shows you were on earlier on TV shows. What was the transition from theater to television like? Oh, well, you know, I mean, it, it, it it's not so much a transition as sort of an opening up, um, you know, and, um, and you know one of the hallmarks of of my career has been uh diversification i sort of knew early on that this was such a risky business to get into that the more i did the more likely i would be able to kind of cover myself if uh, one of those one or more of those things didn't seem to be going the way i wanted them to uh but more than that there were actually many different disciplines within the art form that i was drawn to. I was always been drawn to voice work, whether it's singing or um, voiceover work, uh, narration, uh, commercials, uh, uh, that sort of that sort of thing. And in fact, my voiceover career has really been the primary driver of my of my career for the last four years or so. But to get to get to answer your question, doing television is extremely different from doing theater. Sometimes it can be very fulfilling. There are certain shows where you show up and people are very like open and welcoming. 
And it also depends on whether you're just there for the day or whether you're coming back and kind of part of the company. So for example, Gilded Age was my my first show. I'm in three or four episodes of that show this season. And it, it, that was my first time sort of being part of a company on television. And that's one of the things that I love most about my work is being a part of a group. It's a collaborative thing to do. What is it, though, uh, some of the shows you've been on, Billion, Succession, Elementary, The Blacklist, how do those experiences differ from each other? What were the, How did the sets differ? How welcoming were the companies? Well, there was never any company that wasn't welcoming, I'll have to say, that I've been on. It, it, on in, every, in every show uh, uh, um, that I've been on, people have been, people have been uh, very, very it, it, ranging from like, oh, wow, I made some friends on this show, to um, on the other end of the spectrum, wow, everybody was very businesslike. And we and efficient, and we got the job done, you know. So I, I haven't had a negative experience. Elementary, I remember elementary, blacklist, the following. These shows were all done on location. The, my scenes were all done on location. Uh, those shows do have sets, but I never, I, I was not shooting on those sets. I was sort of a, a, a guest star, you know, playing some, you know, guy in an office somewhere, probably, all the way to. Well, you know, when I got on to Succession, I was already a fan of the show. And I'd seen the first two seasons, and then I, I appeared in the second episode of the of the third season. And I got to step onto a set that was actually just a, an apartment in downtown Manhattan that I was familiar with. That I was like, oh my God, I'm in this room. That's crazy. I'm in his apartment, you know? And it's just an apartment, you know? Um, and uh, But that was really fun, and then I got to act... I got to actually enter the imaginary world that I had been living in through <laughs> watching the show. And that was really fun. And then all the way to the Gilded Age, which was a brand new show. And it's a Julian Fellows, Downton Abbey style, you know, grand costume drama and all about style and grandeur and money. And it, you know, it's, it is, it's all about money, old money and new money. And so I play the architect Stanford White, and I have designed in the show that Stanford White was a real architect, but fictionally in this show, he has designed the house for Bertha Russell, um, who is new money. And so it is this ostentatious mansion on 61st and 5th Avenue. And I was present for the, our company's first day on the set of that show on the soundstage in Long Island. And that was fascinating and so wonderful. And you can see it in the show, the shot where I bring in Carrie Coon, an old colleague of mine from Chicago, oddly enough, and give her a whirlwind tour of the foyer and the, and the rooms of this downstairs of this mansion. And it was spectacular. It's just as beautiful a whirlwind as it looks like on, on screen. Stanford White, the real Stanford White, had a bit of a checkered past. Is that going to figure into the show at all? Gosh, well, wouldn't that be fun? Um, <laughs> this show takes place in the kind of the mid 1880s, and Stanford White's um, Stanford White's checkered history it sort of takes place a little bit a little bit later 
Okay. Sort of in the in the nineties, and then I think it's nineteen oh six that he is shot, which in, after which ensues the trial of the century, so named in the press, and um, where the um, where the assailant got off at um, for uh, mental illness, basically. Wow. And um, but yeah, he was quite a philanderer, and uh, the um, the Broadway legend, the story of the uh, of the girl in the velvet swing, um, uh, Evelyn Nesbitt was a a victim of Stanford Weiss, you know, by today's not well of course by today's standard, by any standard, he, you know, is alleged to have drugged her and raped her and then convinced her that that's okay. That's how everybody does sex, you know. But he was a he was a huge celebrity of the day in New York and took advantage of it in in all respects, good and bad. He was very philanthropic, but also um, very abusive. So he was the Jeffrey Epstein or Bill Cosby of Zira, uh, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. When you took the role, or when you auditioned for the role, did you know the character going in? No, I didn't. I didn't know anything about Stanford White. Um, I just got the uh, I just got the the script and um, and the uh, you know and that what's called the sides. What, what little bit of script you're going to do for the audition and the description of the role and sort of this vague idea of who Stanford who Stanford White was. I happened to to have a mustache at the time. Be sporting a mustache in my real life. Which I think probably didn't hurt, uh, because uh, if you, if any of your listeners uh, take the time to Google Stanford White um, and 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 look at some images of the guy, his mustache is spectacular. Yes, um, and it is uh, it is approximated in our show, um, and so uh, I, I'm sure that didn't hurt. And uh, yeah, but I I just went into the audition with a full heart and hoping that things would um, you know hoping hoping that I would have a good time that day, and I did, and then it all worked out the rest of it you know how does your preparation for an audition and your preparation for actually doing the role differ or are alike well gosh an audition is sort of like skipping off the material in a little bit you 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 have to you have to learn as much as you can about the material without number one getting getting maybe too deep into it because it's you know you can get in your head um, and, 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 and number two, you're, you don't have the role yet. <laughs> uh, you know, when you're auditioning, you get, you're, you're doing it for free. So that doesn't mean work less, but it's just a different kind of work. You are bringing your, you're bringing your craft to it, and, but you're certainly also bringing your instincts to it because you want to bring yourself. And then when you're actually doing the role, then you have the time to read the books and do the uh, do do the research, read the script over and over again, and and really kind of meditate on where your your character and your where your actions sort of sit in the story, so that you can have all of that into account and, uh, when you go into uh, actually tell it. How does your preparation for a role differ if it's a real life character or a fictional character? Well, gosh, you know. Um, the real life character proved for me to be so enjoyable because there's all of this material that you can dig into. And in this case, Julian Fellows, uh, Sir Julian told us, provided us and his, probably his dramaturgs and assistants with this 
uh, bibliography um, that we could draw upon. And so reading those books was great, but there's also a book called The Architect of Desire, which is a, which is by one of Stanford White's descendants and really goes into, uh, in, in a very well-written piece, uh, the details of so much of his life and, 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 and his family's life. And so you get a real complete picture and and then you can start embellishing and, and, and making guesses and that sort of thing. But I found that to be a really cool grounding when it's a completely fictional character. You have to, you have to do all that work yourself in your imagination and, and hope that those things all fit together. <laughs> well, it was interesting reading an article with JK Simmons talking about playing William Frawley in the Lucy and Desi movie and saying that there was nothing he could draw from because there was nobody alive who knew him that he could uh, talk to yes. and, and find anything out about the guy. And there's nothing written about him other than in like Vivian Vance's book and other places. So he had, he found, he said he found it freeing when there I'm isn't sure. that lore. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure, because then he can really bring whatever resonates uh, 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 to him. You can you can bring the things that resonate to you to the role. Sometimes I, I find it nice to have, you know, in a real uh, uh, when you're playing a real person to have those touchstones there to sort of like step on the the stones are sort of already laid across the stream. Sometimes you want to be able to uh, uh, make your own path. Were there any actors you played opposite, whether it be stage or television, that had an effect on you that greatly impressed you and and maybe affected the way you work? Oh sure, um, you know one of, that comes to mind is Andy Carl in in Groundhog Day. He played Phil Connors in that in that musical on Broadway. His his work ethic was such uh, that he was so incredibly focused and sort of really stayed in his own world, not in a method way in any way. He was always present with us, but he did his speaking through his performance and didn't really. You know, we didn't, even though I had a number of scenes with the guy, we didn't have conversations about the scenes. We would both be aware of what had happened. And the next time we approached it, we would sort of take those things into account vis-a-vis -vis the present moment between us. And that kind of working is, is really wonderful. I worked, I've worked with a few directors who I I'm very enamored with Matthew Warchus, who directed that, and Matilda, and James McDonald, who directed uh, direct, directed me in uh, in Cloud Nine in in New York, which was the first Cloud Nine revival in 25 years, I think, since Tommy Toon directed it in the early 80s. Um, and uh, so, and 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 Roger Rees, another mm -hmm. director, um, uh, um, who's had a, a, a real big personal impact on, on the way I work and how I approach not just the work, but how I approach the people around me. All of these are English directors. <laughs> I don't know. I guess that's saying something. <laughs> what is it about it? I'm somewhat something of an Anglophile, but I guess I've also been just very influenced by my friends from England and Wales. What else do you have coming up that we might be able to see you in or hear you in? Well, um, Nothing right now. <laughs> more Gilded Age. Um, more Gilded Age is, is is the only thing that I've got in the can to 
so to speak. You can hear me on various and sundry advertisements on television and every once in a while I'll promote a show or a football game or, you know, some sort of, some sort of thing. And that's sort of where my work has been a lot over the last few years is behind the scenes, behind the mic. What else would you like people to know about you or your work that I have not asked about? Oh gosh. You know, <laughs> this is free reign. You get to say anything that you is, want. That is free reign. I was, wish I was more like JK Simmons right now and I just lay my <laughs> own stones. Well, and that's the funny thing is that, um, you know, as an actor, you really do sort of, you, you, you sort of go where people tell you. Um, and, um, I enjoy having those restraints and that, that creates those freedoms. I think that those restraints really do create freedoms. But what would I like people to know about my work? That at its best, it is open-hearted and that I hope that I can convey some, some sense of, uh, joy of, of the moment and joy of our, whatever our current predicament is no matter where we find ourselves, even in a dark time, there's a smile hiding somewhere. And, uh, uh, you know, I think that's a nice thought. Where do you see yourself in 10 years? Uh, you know, I used to do like five-year plans, you know. I did when I was back in, back in my 20s and early 30s, I would, I would do five-year plans. It's funny to go back and look at them. Yeah, I don't know, have you, have you ever... You ever done you go back and look at like old journal entries and mm -hmm. and that sort of thing, you know? I find that when I do that, most of the things that I that I actually have accomplished, a, a number of those things, and the things that I haven't accomplished are not met upon reflection with regret, but rather with just the realization that priorities change, you know? Mm -hmm. Oh wow, I really wanted to go work at this one theater in Wisconsin, apparently. <laughs> but now I don't have that desire you know <laughs> someday you might get that again <laughs> or at least not that specific goal anymore you know what i mean so you know thinking about and planning for the future is i find myself as a um a, 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 as 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 a, a a forging tool into the future uh, to be quite a blunt object you know um <laughs> and so i try to just point myself in a direction and hope that it all turns out all right Sounds great. Well, John, thank you so much for being with us. Much continued success. I'm looking forward. Thank you, and sir. I would, uh, a standing invitation to come back if Stanford White gets to the point that he's going to that dark place on Gilded Age. Oh, gosh. Then Wouldn't you get to fun? come back and talk about that. Yes, yes. Wouldn't that be great? Okay, well, thank you. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe and like us on social media and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beat Dick Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios. 